Episode 97 From here the days grow longer. May your log last for twelve days, and your food be plenty through the cold and dark. May light and peace creep over the world in the morning. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxet General. I am your host, Jess. This being solstice, I thought I would dive into some Yuletide treats a Nordic sugar-brown potato dish, and a super-yummy and quick chocolate rum ball. Today's drink is Glug, a Swedish fortified version of Gluvine. Mmm, mmm. Then we listen to more of Dupin's breakdown of Murder in the Murders of the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. But first, I must thank our Patreon subscribers. These festive folk give a tiny bit all year to receive special content, mementos, and ad-free episodes. To us, they are the sun that rises after the short, cold days. They bring the hot wine, holly boughs, rowdy singers, Swedish meatballs, sugar cookies painted like decorated trees that light up our faces, without whom we would be in the dark. Bah humbug. So thank you. If you would like to make a one-time donation, we are almost done with our holiday fund that you can find in the show notes, along with a link to our Patreon.com page when you click Support the Show. So thank you when and if you do, and also just for listening. But for right now, let's get to our cocktail, Glug. As a young child, many things about Christmas preparations were kept from me. Never you mind was often said while hands were waved in my direction to shoo my sibling and I out of the kitchen. But often I would peek around the corner to see what all the giggles were about, only to see my Swedish relatives making and talking about glug. How Uncle Valla used to make it, how it was too late in the season for it to be good enough for Christmas, but all agreed their version called for aquavit. I remember because they said the word at least twenty times. Aquavit, aquavit, aquavit. This is the recipe for glug. For this recipe, you will need two bottles dry red wine, one bottle sweet white wine like Sauterne or German Spätlese, one lemon, one orange, ten cloves, ten cardamom pods, three cinnamon sticks, one inch fresh ginger thinly sliced, one cup raisins, one cup blanched almonds, one cup sugar, one tablespoon bitters, and one cup of aquavit. Combine the wines in a large saucepan. Use a vegetable peeler. Remove the zest of the citrus fruits. Squeeze the fruits and add the juice to the wine. Tie up the lemon peel, orange peel, and spices in cheesecloth and add it to the wine. Add the raisins, almonds, and sugar. Bring the wine mixture to a boil. Reduce the heat and gently simmer for 15 minutes or until the flavors are well blended and the almonds are soft. Skim the wine from time to time to remove any foam. Taste the glug and add sugar as necessary. Just before serving, add the bitters and aquavit. 
ladle the glug into mugs or cups to provide each guest a spoon for eating the raisins and almonds. This just in. This week we have a few shout-outs, first to Patreon subscribers Albin Mosier and Jen Millette. Also, several anonymous donors. Thank you all. Every bit helps, and you all rock. We would also like to shout-out to our good friends at Ghost Ship Market, who visited us recently at the General. Ghost Ship Market was created to fill a gaping abyss of need in the northeastern U.S., the lack of craft, maker, vintage, and fine art shows focused on the goth community. Starting online and in Salem, Mass., they are creating well-curated shows. And if you're interested in being a vendor or shopping, check out GoShipMarket.com or their online shop at FenelonClark.shop. Gifts for the dark and romantic. They carry jewelry, hand-dipped incense, scented candles, and apparel. Check them out! and tell him the general sent you. I realize that we are all really busy at this point in the holiday season, so I have two really quick but show-stopping recipes for you. First, a sweet chocolate almond no-bake rum ball. Once you have the ingredients on hand, you can make them at the drop of a hat for wassailers or family that may stop by. For the rum balls, you will need two cups chocolate wafer crumbs, one cup confectioner's sugar, one cup finely chopped toasted almonds, two tablespoons cocoa powder, three tablespoons maple syrup, and one-third of a cup rum, any kind. In a large bowl, stir together the crumbs, sugar, nuts, cocoa, maple syrup, and rum. Form into one-inch balls and roll them in chopped nuts. Refrigerate until firm. Serve cold or at room temperature. I say, make a bunch the day before and keep in a container in the fridge to whip out for the hors d'oeuvre table to distract them with messing with your main dish prep. Let them enjoy, while you finish, this Norse Yuletide side dish, Bruneva kartoffler, or caramelized potatoes. Nordic sugar brown potatoes. These potatoes are often served during the Yule time. Perfect together with a Nordic roasted duck. This recipe is from NordicFoodLiving.com. For this recipe, you will need two pounds small baby potatoes, one half cup sugar, one ounce butter, and one half cup duck grease. Clean the potatoes, but leave the peel on. Boil the potatoes in lightly salted water for about 15 minutes. Don't boil them too soft. Peel the potatoes using a knife. Let the potatoes cool off before you proceed. You could actually do this the day before you knead the brown potatoes. Pour the sugar in an even layer in a cold frying pan. Turn on the stove onto medium and let the sugar melt without stirring it. Try to avoid using a frying pan with Teflon coating. When the sugar is melted, add the butter to the pan and turn up to high heat. Add the potatoes to the sugar-butter mixture. Fry the potatoes in the sugar-butter mixture for about five to seven minutes. Turn the potatoes constantly. If you are making these potatoes for your Christmas dinner and you have some extra duck grease, add a half a cup of the grease to the pan with the potatoes. This will give the potatoes a great taste and a nice look. 
When the sugar is sticking evenly to the potatoes, they are done. Serve next to your fabulous duck and enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball and pinball and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. Now we return to The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. Let us now transport ourselves in fancy to this chamber. What shall we first seek here? The means of egress employed by the murderers. It is not too much to say that neither of us believe in preternatural events. Madame and Mademoiselle L'Espagne were not destroyed by spirits. The doers of the deed were material and escaped materially. Then how? Fortunately, there is but one mode of reasoning upon the point— and that mode must lead us to a definite decision. Let us examine, each by each, the possible means of egress. It is clear that the assassins were in the room where Mademoiselle L'Espagne was found, or at least in the room adjoining, when the party ascended the stairs. It was then only from these two apartments that we have to seek issues. The police have laid bare the floor, the ceilings, and the masonry of the walls in every direction. No secret issues could have escaped their vigilance. But not trusting to their eyes, I examined with my own. There were, then, no secret issues. Both doors, leading from the rooms into the passage, were securely locked with the keys inside. Let us turn to the chimneys. These, although of ordinary width for some eight or ten feet above the hearths, will not admit, throughout their extent, the body of a large cat— the impossibility of egress, by means already stated, being thus absolute, we are reduced to the windows. Through those of the front room, no one could have escaped without notice from the crowd at the street. The murderers must have passed, then, through those of the back room. Now, brought to this conclusion in so unequivocal a manner as we are, it is not our part as reasoners to reject it on account of apparent impossibilities. It is only left for us to prove that these apparent impossibilities are in reality not such. There are two windows in this chamber. One of them is unobstructed by furniture and is wholly visible. The lower portion of the other is hidden by view by the head of an unwieldy bedstead which is thrust close up against it. The former was found securely fastened from within. It resisted the utmost force of those who endeavored to raise it. A large gimlet hole had been pierced into its frame to the left, and a very stout nail was found fitted therein, nearly to the head. Upon examining the other window, a similar nail was seen similarly fitted to it, and a vigorous attempt to raise the sash failed also. The police were now entirely satisfied that egress had not been in these directions, and therefore it was thought a matter of supererogation to withdraw the nails and open the windows. My own examination was somewhat more particular, and was so for the reason I have just given, because 
Here it was, I knew, that all apparent impossibilities must be proved to be not such in reality. I proceeded to think thus, posteriori, the murderers did escape from one of these windows. This being so, they could not have refastened the sashes from the inside as they were found fastened. The consideration which put a stop, through its obviousness, to the scrutiny of the police in this quarter. Yet the sashes were fastened. They must then have the power of fastening themselves. There was no escape from this conclusion. I stepped to the unobstructed casement, withdrew the nail with some difficulty, and attempted to raise the sash. It resisted all my efforts, as I had anticipated. A concealed spring must, I now know, exist. And this corroboration of my idea convinced me that my premises, at least, were correct. However mysterious still appeared the circumstances attending the nails. A careful search soon brought to light the hidden spring. I pressed it, and, satisfied with the discovery, forbore to upraise the sash. I now replaced the nail and regarded it attentively. A person passing out through this window might have reclosed it, and the spring would have caught, but the nail could not have been replaced. The conclusion was plain, and again narrowed in the field of my investigations. The assassins must have escaped through the other window. Supposing, then, that the springs upon each sash to be the same, as was probable, there must be found a difference between the nails, or at least between the modes of their fixture. Getting upon the sacking of the bedstead, I looked over the headboard minutely at the second casement. Pressing my hand down behind the board, I readily discovered and pressed the spring, which was, as I had supposed, identical in character to its neighbor. I now looked at the nail. It was as stout as the other, and apparently fitted in the same manner, driven in nearly up to the head. You will say that I was puzzled, but if you think so, you must have misunderstood the nature of the inductions. To use a sporting phrase, I had not been once at fault. The scent had never for an instant been lost. There was no flaw in any link of the chain. I had traced the secret to its ultimate result, and that result was the nail. It had, I say, in every respect, the appearance of its fellow in the other window. But this fact was an absolute nullity, conclusive as it may seem to be, when compared with the consideration that here, at this point, terminated the clue. There must be something wrong, I said, about the nail. I touched it, and the head, with about a quarter of an inch of the shank, came off in my fingers. The rest of the shank was in the gimlet hole where it had broken off. The fracture was an old one, for the edges were encrusted with rust, and had apparently been accomplished by the blow of a hammer, which had impartially embedded in the top of the bottom sash the head portion of the nail. I now carefully replaced its head portion into the indentation whence I had taken it, and the resemblance to a perfect nail was complete. The fissure was invisible. Pressing the spring, I gently raised the sash a few inches. The head went up with it, remaining firm in its bed. I closed the window, and the semblance of the whole nail was again perfect. Perfect.
The riddle, so far, was now unriddled. The assassin had escaped through the window which looked upon the bed. Dropping of its own accord upon its exit, or perhaps purposefully closed, it had been fastened by the spring, and it was the retention of this spring which had been mistaken by the police for that of the nail, further inquiry being thus considered unnecessary. Thank you once again for joining us today at the Patuxent General. If you would like to reach out with a recipe or question or local ghost story, our email is jess at patuxentgeneral.com. Please reach out. We can't wait to hear from you. And we'll get back to you as soon as possible. But until then, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxent General. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxent. <laughs> <laughs>